What's up, y'all? It's Zach. We live in corporate and I continue to be so hopeful for 2023, right? Like straight up, like I'm thinking about the fact that we're looking at recording this on and releasing this on the day after MLK Day. And, you know, listen, here's the reality, right? Like this week and probably last weekend, you know, y'all have seen and will continue to see companies that have historically not only not cared about black folks, uh, but have actually directly exploited black and brown people post a bunch of stuff about Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. Like, and, and they'll take some of his more genteel quotes out of context and say, we need to continue his legacy. But what if I was to tell you that King's legacy was so radical and his narrative and his rhetoric and his philosophies so disruptive that he was murdered for them. What if I was to tell you that King was so radical, in fact, that the majority of white people didn't even like him? What if I was to tell you if you pulled up the average article uh, written on King back while he was alive, it would sound eerily similar to the same things that they say about black protesters and black uh, civil rights organizations and initiatives today? It's easy to look back on things and act like you was on one side when you were on the other. But the reality is, is that King was for all, all points of degree, a disruptor, a troublemaker. Um, and he was hated. He was called a leftist and a communist and a, all the things, frankly, a socialist, a Marxist. He was called all the, all the language that you're seeing uh, being leveraged as a cudgel for black and brown folks today, specifically black folks, they used for King back then. And so I want, I hope if you're listening to this, I want you to use your critical thinking. Don't get caught up and don't give all these little posts on social media, thumbs up and likes either. Uh, Don't truly do not examine the organizations that are making the statements and look at their history of how they treated black folks. Then make a determination if you want to support them or not. Right, we're in this microwave culture where people just throw stuff up online and we're looking for engagement, looking for reaction. I want you to be critical, right? Um, you know, and so that being said, I'm excited and honored by the guest that we have today, Ben Jealous, um, who's a former uh, leader of the NAACP. Um, uh, he ran for office um, some years ago as well. But if you don't know who Ben Jealous is, I mean, I don't know. You got to look, click the links in the show notes. We're going to we're going to get into it. So I'm not going to like give it too much sauce on the top end. I'm really excited about my discussion with Ben. We talk about a wide array of things in terms of history of the NAACP, uh, the work that they've done historically, where they stand and really what they're fighting for today. Um, how much of what they're doing today is uh, fixture versus transformative and their leadership and their efforts and the organizing uh, journey. I'm really excited about the the book that we talk about. Um, remember that we were always free. Um, so you're going to hear us talk about his journey in writing that book, his family. Uh, we talk about King and his legacy and we talk about uh, capitalism. We have an interesting conversation there. It's a really good opportunity. And I would really encourage folks, black folks specifically, is to engage your elders, right? Like engage the folks who've been here longer than you. Have a dialogue. Seek to understand and get their perspective on the work, right? Like if there's someone who really understands the work and community grassroots organizing, it's going to be somebody like Ben Jealous, right? So you're going to hear us get into a few different avenues as we talk about this concept of liberation and organizing and community and uh, the realities of, of white supremacy and patriarchy and colonialism and uh, late stage capitalism. Right. So we talk about it all. I'm going to say as we pivot into uh, this little next section before we get into the conversation, before we break, I want to tell you something. If your rhetoric and if your language as a diversity and inclusion professional, frankly, as a as a leader, as a community leader, isn't challenging systems and structures that continue to harm and oppress and exploit folks, you're not really doing the work. And honestly, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, I want y'all to hear me when I say that my biggest pain point and frustration with a lot of folks that look like me is not 
is that they don't really want to actually change the system. They just want to change their position in the system, right? They don't really want to like upend and shift the ways that we do business and think about business. They don't want to shift the ways that we think about talent and managing people or treating people. They just want to be treated a little bit better in the system. Right. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm not interested. And living corporate is not a platform that's interested in moving from the fields to the house. We don't want there to be plantations at all. Like we're seeking to fundamentally change the way that business is handled because the way that business is handled today continues to harm everybody, including straight white men. But of course it's harming black and brown folks, particularly black women, particularly trans black women the most. And it continues to, and it has historically, I don't want that system to exist. I'm not coming on this, on this platform and you don't hear any other shows across our network telling you how to navigate the plantation better or how to move up in the plantation or how to make your plantation experience more comfortable. Why? Because the plantation is wrong, yo. And guess what? Because this system is so oppressive for every experience that improves for you, someone else is being exploited because of that. That's how jacked up, right? Like corporate America is. And so I'm interested And again, living corporate's mission is around centering and amplifying historically marginalized voices at work, because only in centering and amplifying those historically marginalized voices, can they be empowered? And can we really start pivoting and shifting power dynamics so that these systems can be changed, if not all all together eradicated? Okay, and I'm telling you something that that type of language, some of y'all be hearing this, y'all kind of like some of you may feel uncomfortable. Yo, King said all of that and more, right? Anyway, look, happy MLK Day. I hope that your weekend found you well. I hope that you enjoy the conversation we have with Ben Jealous. And I hope that you uh, that you hang out with us. All right, we'll see you soon. Be back in a minute. Ben Jealous, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Zach, it's good to be with you, brother. Hey, man. Um, listen, we're going to talk about your book. We're going to get to it. But I got to talk to you about your time with the NAACP. I mean, you know, I think about the history of the NAACP. And I and the first thing I think about, I was raised in school to under, to believe and understand that NAACP was critically engaged and responsible for involved in the civil rights movement. We wouldn't have all the things that we have today without the the leadership and the work of the NAACP in coordination with a variety of other black community, black and brown and other community organizers to like um, to have to have to, to make the progress that we've made in this country. I'm curious, like sitting as the former leader of uh, NAACP for a significant season, what would you I know? I, could, I think in the 60s, we could say in the 70s, hey, we know what the NAACP is fighting for. We know what they're looking to push. We know what they're looking to realize and looking to radically change and shift. What would you say is the NAACP's primary fight today? Well, you know, it's funny. When I started the NAACP, it was 2008. And my first responsibility was making sure that folks really turned out maximally to support Barack Obama. And the playbook that we developed then would prove crucial in reelecting him in 2012. Um, that year, we put a million new voters on the on the field, if you will, in the ballot boxes across America. And as you recall, tw- you know, two, 2008 seemed like there was no denying him the presidency, but 2012 was a, was a real question. And once he was elected, there was this period between him winning the election and his inauguration. And a month after his inauguration, not even that, three weeks after that was the 100th anniversary of the NAACP. And so we had like three months that stretched from the election of America's first black president to the 100th anniversary of the NAACP. And in that gap, man, the number one question would come from reporters. All of them, I think, thought they were unique asking it, even though they all asked the same damn question, which was NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, 
we now have a black president. How much further do your folks need to advance? Do we really need this organization? <laughs> and I I'm remember a, that. Racism okay. is over. <laughs> you know, I'm a journalist, so I was trying to be really earnest. You know, the youngest president in the history of the NAACP is one sound erudite and responsive. But eventually, I just got real street. I said, you know, the operative phrase in NAACP is double A. We are not the N triple ACP. We're not the National Association for the Advancement of a Colored Person. We're the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And last time I checked, we had like a million brothers in prison and one headed to the White House. So why don't we talk about the million that we're not talking about and how we stop that? The reality is, if you wonder, like, what is the NAACP focused on in any given moment in American history, ask yourself, what is the problem, what is the injustice in America that's so big you can see it from space? You can see cotton plantations from space. You can see the ghettoification of America and the you know, segregation, the, the pushing of people into urban areas of a darker hue literally from space. Um, and you can see America's prison industrial complex from space. And that's what we were focused on when I was there. It still continues to be a lot of the work of the NAACP. Ultimately, the challenge for the NAACP these days is to knock out the pillars to maintaining massive poverty in the United States. And one of the most painful things is the bitter pill contained in the old a complaint uh, I used to experience when I was a young organizer in NAACP. And again, some brother thinking he was being unique, uh, mm, National Association of the Advancement of Certain People. But, you know, when people come at you like that, you got to ask yourself, well, what's the truth in what they were saying? What's the pain that, you know, uh, that is just sort of the barbed tip of? And and the reality was this, brother, when when Dr. King was assassinated 14 years after Brown versus Board, and when there was a head of steam on a lot of the NAACP's agenda for that time, 48% of black folks were in poverty. And 40 years later, when Barack Obama was elected president, before the recession started, 48% uh, you know, of um, black America was in poverty before the recession really got rolling. And so uh, the reality is, that and this really brings me to my book and the purpose of, of writing never forget our people who are always free is that the NAACP had hit sort of like a hard deck that it couldn't go below uh in lifting people up the name NAACP is actually a formula for lifting everybody up the organization did change its name people said you know, oh, why do you change it? We did. We were founded as the National Negro Association. That lasted less than two years. W.B. Du Bois himself came into a meeting and was like, y'all, we got to change your name. And they're like, Dr. Du Bois, why should we change our name, sir? He's like, because what does our name mean? He said, you know, we aren't here to lift up one group or the other. We're here to lift everybody up. We're here to fight colonialism and segregation and this ridiculous notion that the wealthy Anglo-Saxon white man is somehow above everybody else. Colored people back then was what people of color meant now, except it was broader. It also included, for example, Irish Catholics, it included anybody who was under the boot of colonialism as opposed to wearing it. And, um, and Dr. Du Bois was very involved in the, movement to liberate colonies in Africa and the Caribbean and the Indian subcontinent and Northern Ireland, supportive of all of that, uh, came up with the name, the National Association of Advancement of Colored People as a formula, not for pushing anybody down, but just simply lifting everybody up that colonialism and its progeny, like apartheid in South Africa and segregation in the U.S., you know, were, were pushing down. My book, Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free, um, very much was designed to be a book that if Dr. King was still alive today and his old jailer that he wrote about in his letter from a Birmingham jail still hadn't figured it out, he could say to him, why don't you read this? In other words, it's a book that, yes, it'll be entertaining to black folks and brown folks and, you know, people who, uh, 
feel like they kind of know everything about race and the origin of it in America. But it's also a book that's designed to be very accessible to my white uncle who voted for Trump, who's literally my favorite uncle. But dealing with the pain of being a white guy who's made stuff and feeling like the Democratic Party doesn't have a vision for helping men who make stuff do better. There's a lot of black men who feel that way, too. They don't vote for Trump. But, you know, as I tell folks, when, you know, Bethlehem Steel shut down its operations in Baltimore, it didn't just hurt white people on the south side. It also hurt black folks on the west side. And, uh, you know, that's fundamentally, I'd say, the pain of our country is ultimately the pain of an old system that enforces poverty for the masses of all colors so that a few folks can remain insanely wealthy. To that end, like you're speaking to some the elements there that some elements there around just like how America functions. And like I want to pause on that for a moment because I recognize that the NAACP and Dr. King are two separate entities and two separate like they're, they're, those are not they're not one and the same. No. But you're alluding to a few different things here. Right. Around like and I think about King's messaging during his during his work, during his ministry, during his movement. And it was often anti, it was anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, anti-war. Um, you know, one of the last messages he had was talking about going back to the capital and demanding a check um, for the resources that black folks uh, were not afforded regarding education and loans and other funding and, and resource. I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, do you see, like, our late stage capitalist context being um, uh, reconcilable with uh, with liberation and equity and advancement for black and brown people? You know, there's a difference between capitalism and late stage capitalism. Give it to me. So late stage capitalism is basically a world of monopoly that crushes competition. Capitalism in its purest form is, is competition. And Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph, it's true. They spoke at a socialist convention the day after the March on Washington. It's also true that they had a vision for a robust capitalist society in which there was simply a floor for how bad you could treat a worker and how bad you could treat a business person. Dr. King's movement was funded by black capitalists um, who Mm. at great peril to themselves, because one of the great, I talk about this in the book, you know, one of the great prices for desegregation that black folks are aware of, but we don't talk about much is the millions of small businesses that we lost. And with it, the ability to guarantee summer jobs to your to your young people, because it used to just be the church that would organize that through the small businesses that were patrons of the church. But when the small businesses disagree, when the small businesses disappear and, you know, um, the uh, the white businesses, the white owned businesses that profited from that and the corporations that profited from from that don't share that same commitment suddenly you end up with these urban, you know, summer jobs programs trying to fill a void. You have to understand that it's literally filling a void that used to be filled by legions of uh, black business people, uh, entire business districts full of black business people. And so um, I think we have to be careful. You know, there's a, there's a lot of young people now who, um, you know, they're out there and they're anti-capitalist. Well, and then they want to say, oh, Dr. King was anti. No, Dr. King was anti-greed. He was anti-racism. He was anti-war. Uh, um, but he was also very much on the front lines trying to figure out how to make a market-based economy work better for everybody. Um, mm. You know, they called FDR a socialist, too. Um, they called me a socialist when I ran for governor as a venture capitalist. Those folks, <laughs> the people who throw terms around like that, typically are addicted to this kind of type of late stage capitalism. Um, you know, for me, 
like a lot yeah. of business people in Europe, the value I see, for example, in making sure that everybody in America has health care or that, mm. you know, we give the current generation the same deal in public universities that we gave the baby boomers, which is that it's free. So it will unleash entrepreneurs. How many people stay stuck in dead end jobs because they're afraid to lose their health insurance? How many entrepreneurs, you know, people who are literally in their DNA and their soul entrepreneurs don't go open that new business that would have been a great job creator in the community because they got $100,000 in college debt. Yeah. I mean, I think about, I mean, look, I'm, I'm looking at my own network, right? Like there's so many things that I just, I praise my mom for helping me. Like she paid for my college that unlocked my ability to have one buy a home as like two years out of, out of college. Yeah. So I was able to save and not have any additional notes. Help me, it helped me build living corporate, which helped, which helped me buy my second house. Right. So, so, so a hundred percent on that. And, and I, and to your point, like, I want to, I want to engage like your statement about, about the capitalist piece. I think I want to shoot my uh, millennial and Gen Z cohort um, some bail and say, we, we don't often delineate capitalism late stage capitalism or really like dig into like, okay, what does that really mean? Yeah. I think, I think so much of like what we, well, first of all, we're, we were born into a late stage capitalist society. Yeah. And then on top of that, when you think about like America and its founding, you think about this, the harsh exploitative nature of, of capitalism and that we were capital. Right. And so I agree and understand, um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity, though, for like increased dialogue like this and education and communication around like, OK, what are we actually saying? And is all is capitalism inherently is is competition bad? Right. Because if you you're framing Ben of capitalism is competition. Well, hell, then, yeah, that's that's dope. Like we compete and it's cool. Like, you know, but to your point, like there seems to there isn't it doesn't seem to, the floor seems to be. Yeah, no, I mean, we we're, we were all born into a mess. And that's, it's part of the spirit of the book. You know, it's like what Dr. King understood when he was leading the poor people's campaign at the end of his life. And mind you, he was not assassinated fighting racism. He was assassinated fighting to end poverty, fighting greed. And what he understood in, in the end, for that matter, the equivalent of Dr. King to him would have been Frederick Douglass, that Frederick Douglass understood was that upstream of capital? Sorry, upstream of of racism was greed, uh, and it, you know, and the sort of original, if you will, late stage capitalism in the Americas is the old, you know, is the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's it's the old colonial enterprise that was Virginia and Maryland, um, and you know, very well resourced, total institution. You lived in the corporation. Our colonies were corporations, and sometimes whole sets of co- colonies were corporations. And we've all been trying to break out of that. And so like, one of the things we all really need to understand is that America, the American experiment, has existed longer than racism as we know it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Race as a word is created in the 12th century in Italy. Raza, it means genus. It means type. For a group of people, it essentially means tribe, people bound by geography. Well, in that respect, kind of every race is equal in as much as we all belong to some group. And that group has opinions about other groups, right? And so, you know, that's why in the English language, you might hear things like, oh, we Scots are a a mighty race. We Irish are a mighty race. They're using the term race as it was understood long before 1619. But 100 years after 1619 is when the so-called modern barbaric notion of race as a colonial caste system defined by color comes into play. And what was that about? Well, if you look 60 years before that, give or take, in Virginia, you start seeing colonial rebellions. So I talk about in in my book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, my grandmother and my first person to teach me politics in college would always use the same refrain. Never forget that before there were slave rebellions, there were colonial rebellions. What were they talking about? They were talking about European indentured servants and African slaves, and occasionally even Native Americans rebelling together. 
And how did the, the colonies respond? They responded with the military. Well, you know, that would put down that rebellion, but there would be another rebellion. Then they responded with laws legislating the, the difference, clarifying the difference between European indentured servants and African slaves. That worked, but it didn't completely shut it down. And then they turned to culture. And in racism as we know it, race as we know it, not the historic notion of tribe, but the modern notion of a color caste created in the context of colonialism. Well, that was the most effective way to push these two groups apart. And why is that important? It's important, Zach, because if you want to preserve the possibility of allowing a few people to remain and become even more insanely wealthy, then you've got to limit the ability of the masses of people to demand their just due. And you do that by splitting groups. You do that by splitting groups. You know, you're speaking to like the historicity of oppression and like how these systems have, have, uh, fairly consistently and reliably, like you can almost set a clock to how they respond to um, working class, poor class, oppressed class people rising up and, and, and leveraging or mobilizing their voice. I'm curious, like when you, you know, what do you see as the key themes around community organizing, especially for black communities as we look in the future, right? So we're recording this in 2023. Let's just talk about like between now and like 2033, like, or even just 2030, like, what do you see being some of the, what are the patterns or things you're noticing when you, when we talk about community organizing? And then I think part B to that is what role would you imagine that the NAACP would, would play in being a partner or amplifier of those groups? Right. So I think about, as an example, I think about like um, young protesters and organizers coming out of Ferguson, coming out of these hot sit these hotbed cities, um, of re- of more of more recent police brutality, I think about like uh, current organizers in in Chicago, in Houston. You know, I'm, I'm I'm really curious to get your perspective on both of those things because I see organizing can uh, organizing is not going anywhere. I I'm curious about the permutations it's going to take as technology continues, and I'm curious as to how these like legacy groups and organizations, the role they play as as organizing grows at these grassroots levels. Well, you know, it turns out that technology is just a medium for organizers. Um, And so what worked historically in organizing people as far as the issue or the type of campaign tends to work best. You know, it worked best in the churches and it works best online. I'll give you an example of that. In the NAACP, when I took over, we hadn't grown our membership nationally two years in a row in more than a generation. While I was president, which, you know, my last real public act of president was the day, the day before Black Lives Matter was launched. You know, it was it was our response to the the killing of, sorry, it was our response to the acquittal of um, George Zimmerman at eleven o'clock on a Saturday night, and the protests across the country began that Sunday. Um. And, uh, you know, the acquittal of George Zimmerman for murdering Trayvon Martin. Well, when I turned on the news, when I got home and I saw the evening news reports that Sunday and Monday of all these young people protesting across the country, sometimes at the mic, but always the second line was full of young people that I recognized from the NAACP. Because for the five years before that, we had raised those kids on a diet of what we would have called at Amnesty International individual casework. The NAACP is where Amnesty learned how to do that work from, right? That's the Scottsboro boys. It's all the, you know, it's the Emmett Till case. It's all those definitive cases. You know, it's even Rosa Parks of us organizing to support an individual wronged by the justice system or a group of individuals. And so, for a generation or more, the NAACP had done that at a local level, but nationally would prefer to advocate for like landmark legislation, for instance. And as an organizer, you know, I said to the national board, yeah, we're going to keep advocating on national legislation, but 
we've got to recognize what made us a rocket ship in the first place and get back to doing that if we want to get to greater elevation. And that was championing individual cases. The doorway to a great cause is typically a terrible case. You know, as president of NAACP, we abolished the death penalty in six states in five years. The two hardest ones were Connecticut and Maryland. Connecticut, why? Because there was a high-profile murder case involving an heiress that was going on, an heiress who was brutally murdered by a stranger. And it's the type of thing that just shuts down any debate at the state capitol about abolishing the death penalty right now. And we abolished it in the midst of that trial. And then we abolished it in Maryland, which is the first state south of the Mason-Dixon to abolish the death penalty. Now we've done it in Virginia, too. And um, why was that possible? Because a man named Troy Davis on death row said to me, Ben, it's great. Everything you're doing to try to get the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles to, to spare my life. Let me be clear. This is Georgia. They will do, Ben, whatever the hell they want to do. And he was right. We, uh, the history there was there were six votes. Um, or the, there, were, there were five votes. There were five votes, the Board of Pardons and Paroles in Georgia. Historically, the two black members would vote to, to spare Troy and the three white members would vote to kill him. So we put all of our efforts. We had literally CEOs of major corporations. We had former governors of deep south states. We had the former head of George Bush's FBI. We had the former warden of the death row that Troy Davis was on, calling those members, those three white members, to flip them. And one of them flipped. And for a moment, we appeared to have the votes. The two black members would vote the ways they had before. One of the white members had flipped. You know what happened? Turned out one of the black votes was the chairman of the board himself. He flipped his vote when he saw the white member flip his vote. Showed his true colors. It was three black men who killed Troy Davis. It was Clarence Thomas, who was on duty that night at the Supreme Court, paused for a second, and then let the execution go through. Before that, it was the black chair, the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles. And before that, it was the black DA in Savannah, who was elected with support of the civil rights community, but had his own scandals and didn't want to reopen the case. I mean, if we're real honest, we can't just blame white people when grave injustices are done to our people, when, when the three people who literally had the power to start it by either launching a new murder investigation or, you know, voting the way he had twice before, or just remembering what a shithole Savannah is when it comes to racial justice. In the case of Clarence Thomas, who complains about that all the time and what his childhood was like, but he's like, stuff don't change in poor Southern cities. Like, let's be real, Clarence, whatever you dealt with on the playground is what Troy Davis was dealing with in the justice system. Um, I hope you can cuss your podcast, but, but no, let's go. No, cause I'm not, cause I'm activated and I have some, now I have some other things I want to yeah, ask. Keep going. So, so, so a lot of the kids who organize black lives matter around the country, we raised on a diet of fighting local cases of injustice. And that's what grew the NAACP. And now I'm headed over to lead the Sierra club. I'll be the first black head of a major environmentalist group in the country. And what I said to them is, you know, there's plenty of work for us to do. And the, you know, we tend, Sierra Club actually tends to be biggest in urban areas, if principally organizing white people historically. Um, and there's plenty of work to do in those cities to save black lives. It's, you know, it's shutting down the incinerator in Baltimore um, that burns trash. And then that pollution blows right over, you know, half of what they call the black butterfly in Baltimore, the, the, the black sides of the city right over the housing projects where my mama grew up. And so, you know, the reality is that what built the Sierra Club historically was local fights to protect the environment. And case of like helping lead more people of color into the Sierra Club, like we don't need to do anything other than lead local fights to protect the environment. Where we are, we just have to draw the broadest circle around who our community is. And when you're fighting to save the planet, ultimately, it's everybody. You know, we, we've we been having a really good conversation. I promise this is going to be my last non-direct question about the book. Okay? We're going to talk <laughs> Hi, about brother. this book, okay? Because you're saying you say something, I'm like, well, damn, I got to say something. Okay, <laughs> so so Clarence Thomas, mm. um, I didn't know that a lot of black folks never liked Clarence Thomas. I'm over here thinking that he was like, at one point, beloved and then kind of self-sabotaged a la Ben Carson. Um, yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious. You know, when I was a child, we used to say, if you're going to be a, a doctor, be like Ben. If you're going to be a lawyer, be like Thurgood. 
Okay. So so and and so here's the thing. I I'd love your perspective. I mean, I, and I and this actually goes into like even your own identity, right? But like on black on skin folk who come in, they leverage their race, but are even if it's some cocktail of internalized oppression or just a willingness to uh, to sell out so that they can continue to advance on like on the bodies of black people. Like how, if, how did you navigate that really real reality? Like I, I say that because I've, I'm a, I've been in corporate America and I, of course, like you engage in corporate America and everybody that looks like you is not for you. Right. Okay. You know this. Right. And so it's like, but, but that, that spirit, that element, that, that sadly, that tradition was not something born out of corporate America. Right. I think like every, all oppressed communities have, self-hatred within themselves that like that manifest in different ways but i'm curious like what did that look like for you to navigate that very real element as like in the work that you've done as an organizer and now and like did you ever snap did you ever like blow up on them or have like like what did because if it's me and i'm talking to clarence thomas and i'm sitting in your position i'm probably gonna say stuff i ain't gonna be able to be the president of naacp no more <laughs> but i want to <laughs> but i want to understand i really want to if you could like take me in like into a day of life or like a real interaction or experience like how do you navigate that because it's a it's a it's a real barrier you like i didn't know that three black folks were responsible for troy davis in that regard um and i'm certain that you have other stories so i'm just i'd like to i'd love you to just talk a little bit more about that and what that's looked like for you yeah, well, I, you know, there are moments when you speak candidly about that pain. I, I did that at Troy's, at Troy's funeral. I just couldn't look at out all those black folks, kind of working class black folks from Savannah, and not tell the truth about who had killed their son. And, um, and he was a son of Savannah, and he was innocent. Um, it's, it takes a whole lot for the former warden of death row to say there's too much doubt to execute you. You know what I'm saying? Those are pretty jaded guys. And if they're speaking up, you know, and I had looked, you know, I had looked at uh, the guards cry as Troy told me his story because they knew Troy for 20 years. They, they knew that this man wasn't a murderer. He made some bad life decisions, you know, we drunk with the wrong people, but he was, he was no killer and they knew it. And that meant that if there were five people in that room, or I guess there were six, the two of us and four guards, that amongst the six of us, they were the only ones who were ultimately going to be guilty of killing an innocent man because their job would require them to restrain him while he was executed, right? And so what a terrible place to put human beings in. And that was my conversation with... um, with uh, the the man who had replaced the old warden because the the governor ostensibly wanted to make sure he would have a warden who would not be defiant if he ordered to kill Troy Davis. So he put somebody in there. And I confronted that man too. Um, well, what I'd say is my grandmother, you know, died at 105 last summer. She very much is a hero of my book, Never Forget Our People Are Always Free. Mm-hmm. Leading black social worker, her most famous mentee as a social worker is a former U.S. senator named Barbara Mikulski, who my grandma trained as a social worker. Wow. And my grandma, when I was young and dealing with racism, and, you know, racism was was weird for me in a way because I was so light that I could find myself in situations where people just assuming that I'm this or I'm that, right? So then I get mm-hmm. to hear how people really talk when we ain't in the room. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that can make a whole lot of things explode, you know, like your head, mm. your fists, all of it. And so I come back to my grandmother, who was also as light-skinned, even more light-skinned than me, and, and just say to her, like, what do I do? You know, you know, I go to school tomorrow and kick their ass. Like, what do I do? And she yes. would say, more often than not, she would say, oh, baby, just feel sorry for him. I think for a second what it must be like to be that dumb. Said, baby, for some people, said, for some people, it's punishment enough to just have to be themselves. Like to live their whole lives like that. Just think about yeah. it. And I was just, you know, it, it, just like you started to laugh. I would just, I would just laugh too. Because I mean, how could you deny the, the logic of that? 
So, you know, and that's, um, I think at the end of the day, you know, the thing about racism, the insanity that is racism, is that we're all born into it. None of us chose to be in this position or that position. No one gets to choose their hue or the kink of their hair or the color of their hair or what side of the tracks. We all just got to cope with the insanity. And so in my book, you know, what I really try to do with a lot of humanity is to just get people just to look at it for a second and the cost that each of us has to bear uh, in being dehumanized and ultimately living in a nation that's held back. So I appreciate your answer. You know, again, we're going to get to this book. The title is Never Forget, Our People Are Always Free. I want to start by why why that title the never forget and always free like talk to me about how you got there oh i mean that was a conundrum from from my grandma she would say that stuff and my sister for example would just repeat it and it turned out i figured out in the book that my grandmother was just repeating it too and neither one of them were really questioning it the women in the family said this thing we know going back at least four or five generations it didn't make any sense because like my grandmother, three of her four grandparents were born into slavery and theirs before them and theirs before them. Well, where did it come from? Well, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. helped me map out the DNA of my family. And without giving it all away, uh, my maternal line in America starts with a, a woman who was enslaved And, uh, but she had been born a pirate. And well, what would a pirate woman say to her children and her grandchildren? But never forget our people were always free. And how would a pirate say those words? They would say it as an act of insurrection and incitement to insurrection. Because any child who understood that freedom was their people's history would conclude on their own that therefore they must make it their people's destiny. You know, you talk about, you talk about these three lies, um, common lies around race and racism. Like, would you mind? And I know that's in the book, so I'm not trying to give the book away. We'll make sure we put the link in the show notes, make sure y'all check out the book. It'll be everywhere. Make sure you do that. Um, But if you could, please talk a little bit about these three lies. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the first you know, the first lie is that it's always been this way. And we've talked about that a bit. You know, the people want you to believe that race and racism as we know it is permanent. Not only is that not true, the notion of race, the notion of racism that we deal with in America is younger than the American experiment itself. Our country starts around 1619 and the modern definitions of race and therefore racism start around like 100 years later, around 1720, 1730. Um, prior to that, when Africans are enslaved, they are listed by people of nationality picked up at a particular port. After that point, they are simply listed as Negroes, like cattle, like chattel, you know, collected at a port. Um, people had been enslaved for millennia prior to that in different societies. But after that point, uh, there was a new type of slavery. It was chattel slavery. And we were referred to as subhuman, and that re, and that ha, that was the product of a new definition of race. So why is that important? Because if racism was, um, and race as we know it is younger than the American experiment itself, then there's every reason to hope that we can end something that are, that that we started, if you will. Um, it, it has not always been this way. It does not always have to be this way. The second real lie is kind of like the the Archie Bunker mythology, if you will, this notion that it was just guys like him who paid a price for the whole world changing in the 1960s, for women coming into the job market and for people of color coming into the job market. If you will, the only white men paid a price for the end of segregation, and it's just not true. The other guy who paid a price was Mr. Jefferson, I had black dry cleaner owners in my family. They went out of business. Why? Because segregation ended and all of a sudden there were better capitalized companies with more access to capital, unfettered by discrimination. 
who seized the black marketplace that segregation had denied them and drove black dry cleaners like Mr. Jefferson out of business. And the third lie is that racism really only hurts black folks, really only hurts people of color. It's true, it does hurt us, and it hurts us perhaps in, in more ways and in, and in ways that are more searing and denigrating and humiliating and frustrating, sure. But why was the colonial enterprise so eager, eager to embrace a new definition of race? Why wasn't the old one just fine? Well, because there was a certain magnetism amongst the poor. The poor different groups kept coming together and rebelling and they needed to divide them and the military response wasn't working and the legal response wasn't working as well as they had hoped. And, but the cultural response worked and actually convincing one group of people that they were inheriting inherently superior, even if you couldn't convince the other group completely that they were inherently superior, I mean, uh, inferior, maybe only a few of us ever really internalized that completely. Just convincing poor whites that, man, they were superior to us just because they were white was enough to keep them from, from uh, finding common cause with us to shift from a epoch of colonial rebellions where whites and black, what we now refer to as whites and blacks, Europeans and Africans were rebelling together to now centuries, if you will, of slave rebellions and urban uprisings and black people essentially um, rebelling in isolation. Although we saw after George Floyd, I think some fracturing of that and more, you know, uprisings that were more multiracial. And, um, and the irony, of course, is that if the real value of a new definition of race in the early 18th century was to keep these two groups apart so they would not demand their just dues together, then what you're talking about is the real value is keeping people trapped in poverty so others can be insanely rich. And while numerically that's hurt more whites than blacks, because we got about eight and a half million, not on a percentage basis, just the raw numbers and organizer, we we're concerned about numbers too. There's eight million and change blacks in poverty, and there's 16 million and change whites in poverty. And that's the, you know, that's the uh the irony, the tragedy, and the possibility of it all is that if you can really get people to understand that they have a common interest in moving beyond our nation's legacy of racism that goes well beyond the bounds of people of color and actually might financially benefit more whites, uh, well, that's a different kind of conversation to have. And that's the conversation we'll book. Man, like... Ben, I really appreciate this conversation. I'm so glad that you're ready to be a, um, a guest on Living Corporate. We consider your friend of the show. Hope to have you back. Uh, I looked at my suggested questions. I wanted to talk to you about Dave Chappelle, but we'll we'll couch that for the next conversation, okay? We'll do that. Yeah, that, that's good, man. Look, I mean, before you just, just just a little tease for your readers. Man, you get in this book, chapter one, you will learn how and why I had to train Dave Chappelle to shoot. And uh, in the middle of the book, I discovered Robert E. Lee was my cousin. And man, I had to put down my pen for a week. So uh, it, please grab the book, enjoy it. And I look forward to future conversations, Zach. It's been a whole lot of fun, bro. I love it. Ben Jealous. Uh, look, man, all the link in the show notes. Y'all need to check out the book. You need to check out about Ben. If you don't know him, you don't know his, don't know his body of work, get familiar. And we'll catch y'all soon. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Peace, man. Peace, brother. And we're back. Yo, shout out to Ben Jealous. Shout out to all the organizers out there, right? Community organizing is hard work. It's not about being famous. It's not about having a bunch of followers and likes on the social medias. It's not about the book deal. It's not about being on the big stages, being sponsored by these huge corporate organizations that have historically exploited black folks. It's not about that. Community organizing is about the community and it's about providing resource and empowerment to communities that continue to be harmed um, by frankly, white institutions. 
It's about speaking truth to power in real ways. And let me tell you something. If after you get done talking, nobody's uncomfortable in this season, in this world, you probably haven't really said nothing, to be honest. Right. You haven't. If institutions love everything you have to say, you're probably not really saying nothing. So it's a good check for you. Now, again, some of y'all just be looking for a check. And if that's what you're about, then be about that. Right. I, you know, I, I'm not about to sit back and rant and scream about you on y'all. But at the same time, like, let's just be honest. And I think in 2023, like you have an opportunity to own where you're at. Right. Are you a corporate shill? Cool. But just move out the way. Move out the way. Stop hitting me up, asking to come on and promote your content. Stop asking me to partner with you on X, Y, and Z. Stop looking to like ride the coattails of the people that are trying to do something, right? I'm not claiming that Living Corporate's doing everything. We're trying to do something meaningful, something authentic. That's why our tagline is real talk in the corporate world. It's not going to change, right? So if you're not about that, they go on somewhere else, but like we, we need less infiltrators and we need more agitators and activators who are going to really do, who are really about the work and they they exist, right? They exist, but some of them can't be seen and heard because you're too busy out here, peacocking, showboating, false flagging and all this other nonsense. Okay. I need y'all to move out the way. I need y'all to move out the way. Stop co-opting black liberation language. Stop, stop standing in the way of progress. Stop trying to change your position on the plantation, just, just stop, or at least stop doing it over here, right? Like just move, you know what I mean? Just move out the way, move out the way. We got really, we have things to do, right? There are black and brown folks every day trying to figure out how to just navigate their own communities, trying to navigate the workplace, trying to figure out how they can just like go to work and not be suicidal, how they can like navigate and not feel disrespected and gaslit every day. I'm here for them. Right. I'm here for the people that continue to work as hard as they can. And the performance reviews are still trash. I'm here for the folks who haven't had a raise in the last five or six years who are underpaid by 30, 40 percent. I'm here for that single individual black person who's been trying to make a difference in their workplace, but has not been heard. Who's who's who continues to be disrespected. Like I'm here for those people. Right. That's what I'm here for. That's what living corporate is here for. You're not going to see me on stages talking a bunch of nonsense. You don't even really see my face a lot. Do y'all No, this is not the Zach Nunn show. This is living corporate. We're a network that centers and empathize black and brown folks who work. We're not going to stop that work. I appreciate you. I love you. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other till next time. Peace. Elevation post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.